0: Welcome to the third episode of the Blackburn News Podcast. This is the second of a two-part episode looking at the issue of homelessness. In the first part, host Craig Needles spoke with London Mayor Ed Holder about some of the things that London is doing to address homelessness in our city and how London achieved what's known as the functional eradication of homelessness among veterans of the Canadian Armed Forces. London has also made available over the winter emergency shelters in modified construction trailers, which have given homeless people a safe place to sleep during the cold weather. But it will soon be warmer, and there are still a lot of questions about whether London and cities like it are doing enough to get their homeless populations into affordable housing.
1: What's going to happen come the end of March, the beginning of April, when people start to say, well, it's not as, uh, you know, it's not as difficult to live outside now, the weather is warming up. No, it is never okay to to have two over 200 people sitting on a waiting list for housing.
0: That's Dr. Jody Hall. She is the co-founder of Safe Space London. She'll speak with Craig in the second half of this episode. But first, Here's host Craig Needles speaking with Craig Cooper. He's the manager of homelessness prevention with the City of London. Let's talk
2: about the number of people in the City of London who are are dealing with homelessness. Uh, In an earlier episode, I was talking with Ed Holder and said we're going to sort of dive into that uh, a little bit uh, later on. So let's do it right here when we're chatting with you. I know that you can't, pinpoint an exact number and the number changes all the time but how does the city of London best try to figure out how many people in this community are dealing with homelessness right now?
3: Yeah Craig it, it is a bit of a, a complex uh, item you, you would think it'd be pretty easy right to, to, to try and figure out who's experiencing homelessness but um, everybody experiences homelessness a little bit differently and uh, some people are couch surfing which I would say are hidden homeless are, are probably the hardest to count right people that are not looking to uh, to engage in services or don't routinely get engage in services are the ones that uh, would generally get missed on any kind of count that we do. But um, we have uh, great data and we use our HIFIS database uh, to to work with um, our agencies and, and to really understand the need in the community. <clears throat> I would suggest right now, you know, when we look at our, our by name list and sort of that outer ring of um, folks that we know that uh, uh, are are. Um, are experiencing homelessness and have, have experienced services or accessed services in the last 90 days is about 1,100. Now it's the numbers probably almost double that when you factor in uh, those folks that are on the um, urgent homeless social housing wait list, and uh, they may not be connecting with uh, sort of the traditional homeless prevention services. May not be living in shelter. They may have be precariously housed or couch surfing and uh, are applying for uh, for those services. So you know it's hard to pinpoint a number. Um, we're definitely well over 1100 that our, our buy name list currently is. And um, yeah, it, 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 the, that upper number is, is the hardest, but as we kind of go down in the folks that we know that are accessing services, we can get a much clearer picture on what that is. So I know our buy name list is 1100, our coordinated access list, so people that we've assessed and know what their support needs are is about 700. And then our priority list, uh, folks who are paper ready and ready to sign leases and find permanent housing is in around the 400 list.
2: Uh, okay, well, that's uh, obviously a, a large number of people, and, and certainly a concerning number of people. I think we would all want that number to be zero. Uh, I know we're working on trying to uh, achieve some of that, but it's uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a lengthy process. Tell me about uh, eradicating veterans' homelessness from your perspective. We chatted about that with the mayor earlier on, but uh, that's a, a project that's been undertaken. It's been it's been very successful so far. How much does that help when it comes to a blueprint to try to uh, help those other folks? The, the numbers that you were just mentioning.
3: Yeah, it helps a lot, actually, Craig, because you know you like you say, you're able to create that blueprint, and you're you're able to sort of um, know what has worked for a specific population, and take the lessons from that that process, and that and that. Um, collaboration amongst the, the various agencies and the various providers and and try it in different populations and so i know we're working closely with our indigenous uh, service providers and our our shelters to, to try to support and house uh, people who are chronically homeless so we're really taking that that exact uh, that, like process and focusing it on uh, some of the other populations we see women that are fleeing violence uh, uh, as a large population and need in community uh, we went through a community prioritization process uh, last week to to try and help refine and, and make some adjustments to our coordinated access, uh, matching, and linking process, and, and women fleeing violence and women experiencing homelessness specifically did uh, uh, rise to the surface about um, for for more need in, in supports and housing. So uh, we're going to take the the work we've done with the vets and. Um, you know really uh, apply that in other areas where it's applicable and we we recognize you know you're not just going to be able to cookie cutter approach that it there are going to be challenges there are going to be uh, things that don't work and so we have to be flexible but we're definitely going to you know use that as the foundation and a starting point and then uh, help drive uh, some work on those other areas.
2: We talk about affordable housing as well. I know there's various definitions of what uh, what's affordable housing when it comes to rent geared to income and, and, and things along those lines, but we need more units is something that we keep hearing about. How do we come up with the number of units that we need and how aggressive do you think we can be when it comes to making sure those
3: units exist when we need them? Yeah, so I think, you know, we uh, as part of our last undertaking of our uh, housing stability action plan and the update to that work, uh, we worked closely with our housing services uh, division as well as our housing development corporation to to get a sense uh, on what uh, the, that number might be. And, and it was around, it was 3,000 at that time. Now, obviously, we've had a, a pandemic since then and uh, some other challenges with uh, increased rental uh, rates increase ownership rates uh, here in the city of London, so I'm sure they're having an impact on the number of units needed. But, but at this point, uh, until we get better data, you know, we're looking at that 3,000 at a minimum. Um, you know, part of the the challenge is, like you say, it's it's bringing those units on uh, uh, at the right time when people are in need, and it doesn't all not every unit necessarily has to be a full brand new bricks and mortar. Part of it is um, a build, and part of it is is making units that are currently available uh, at a better rate, right? And so uh, we know that uh, the average market rent in, in uh, London is for one bedroom is well over 1100. But when you're looking at somebody who is um, working full time at minimum wage, realistically what they should be spending on rent is around 750. So, uh, and then it only goes down from there on folks that are on fixed incomes, uh, or uh, restricted uh, to working and 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 various other challenges they may have. So the rank-eared income stock definitely plays a, po- a part in that. Uh, to me, it is really fo- should focus on those that have uh, that fixed income need uh, and and choosing to to want to live in some of those areas and live in those those developments. Uh, then it's the mix of sort of that missy middle we call it. And uh, where is the where are the units uh, that are in that affordable range for somebody who's working full time on minimum wage and and below. Um, Historically, our, our private market had been able to, to manage that and account for that, but that has changed in the last five to seven years and that that's no longer the case. So uh, we were working closely uh, through our new processes here at the city to to bring on, uh, you know, through our head lease program, uh, you, you know, uh, landlords that are uh, um, that are willing uh, uh, to work with us and work with the populations that we serve, uh, as well as to be able to provide, um, you know, units through the various other planning act tools, whether it's bonusing uh, or or whatever is available at the time. Uh, I know we have our affordable housing uh, community improvement plan, which sort of is supporting, uh, you know, second unit developments in in homes. Uh, It's working on creating uh, incentives for uh, developers to be able to, to build the units at a, a price, that point that, uh, can be, uh, you know, afforded by many. Uh,
2: and that's the the thing is being afforded by many, because there's, there's two different things that we're looking at here. We're helping people who are currently experiencing homelessness, try to put an end to that. And also we want to make sure that people never experience it at all. Right. That's, that's part of the conversation here at the city, or at least uh, I think it should be right.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And so we do, uh, have prevention programs. We, uh, uh, our diversion rate, uh, since we've sort of opened our, our coordinated access front door, so to speak, uh, went from about a 10-11% in our community to, to over 40%. And uh, month over month, we're able to divert individuals who are experiencing, or new to experiencing homelessness uh, at a 40% rate. So uh, better than the one of 10, it used to be uh, not going to shelter. We're almost one of two not going to shelter now. So over time, we, we expect that inflow into shelters to, to have an impact. Obviously, people that have stayed at shelters and that are ingrained in shelters, um, it's very difficult to divert them because uh, a, a number of uh, uh, those processes have been tried with them. And really, it's, it's more around our assessing and getting them permanent housed and getting them connected in a lot of cases to the other community supports that they might need, whether it's trauma uh, or trauma uh, requirement or um, something that they might have from addictions or mental health challenge.
2: Uh, yeah, and there's obviously quite a bit of challenges when it comes to uh, different things people might be facing. You mentioned mental health. There's also, of course, addictions. There's just uh, people who are uh, underemployed, people who have uh, lost jobs. It's just uh, uh, a wide variety of people who may be experiencing homelessness. So I would suspect that makes it a more difficult challenge for you and your colleagues to solve for people because there's so many different stories as far as how someone may wind up in that situation.
3: Yeah, the variables are uh, are quite extensive, and and for a reason why somebody is experiencing homelessness or at risk of becoming homeless, or um, why they can't solve their own homelessness, or why they might need help in solving homelessness, and and it is um it, it is a broad perspective, and so what, we, what we're focusing on is that, you know those right supports are in the right moment at the right time uh, for for the individual, and it really uh, it's individualized base, and you know that that's pretty challenging when you're dealing with you know eleven hundred plus. Uh, individuals that are, are ex- ex- experiencing homelessness, but really that that's where we find we have the long, the best um, results and in, in the longer term and, and help achieving folks meet uh, that housing stability for the long term. So we really work uh, with an individual through our housing support programs. Really get to understand sort of what their challenges are. Um, you know, all the way from a housing first approach, right, right down to a light touch where somebody might just need uh, an economic assistance or maybe a supplement or a housing allowance, and making sure there's that. Um, clear and transparent process for folks um, so that they know if they're in need where do i call how do i get help right i don't want to apply for social housing perhaps maybe i need this or i'm looking for that where can i get that and where can i where can i get assistance on that and that's really what our centralized the coordinated access centralized intake has has been able to provide it's been able to provide that one stop shop for folks that one window almost for people to contact us uh and then work with our, our our csrs and our um, community coordinators to, to get them on the right track In a lot of cases like we've seen with the diversion uh, there, there's abilities and there's, there's opportunities for folks out there so they don't have to, to come to shelter and um, the city has been a shelter focused system for a long time Where if you're experiencing homelessness in any way uh, you go to shelter and, and seek shelter um, we're really trying to help stem that flow uh, into shelter so that you know we can recognize what our emergency shelter system needs to be uh, we do have a, a number of folks that have stayed in shelter for a long time and uh, are very challenging to uh, to house. And so we want to make sure that, um, you know, we're still providing an opportunity for folks that absolutely need that emergency shelter, but that we're not sort of blocking the system, so to speak, uh, with people that have stayed in the shelter one, two and three years.
2: Yeah. And uh, there are uh, clearly people that uh, are, are in stories like that. Do you think that there, well, can, does your data tell us that there is a certain portion of the population that's more at risk for homelessness? I, th- I know that we've talked about people with uh, uh, mental health issues, people who are struggling with addiction. I know that when the mayor and I were chatting, we said that uh, uh, obviously numbers point to it's more likely to impact Indigenous peoples than, uh, uh, than, than anyone else. Uh, what, what, sort of, what segments of the population are at high risk for homelessness and how do we adjust our programs to that?
3: Yeah, that's a, a good question, Craig. And, you know, as we always improve our data, you know, we, we are seeing um, the stories that that data is telling. And so you have touched on the Indigenous population. We're disproportionately represented uh, in the homeless population, right? I think the Indigenous population makes up around 2% of London's overall population. But uh, when you look at uh, absolute homelessness for Indigenous, you're closer to the 20%. And then if you uh, look at sort of that Indigenous definition of homelessness around culturally homeless, uh, and, and spiritually homeless, you're probably even uh, higher than that, right, in, in, into the 30-plus percent range. So uh, designing the programs to, to work with each individual um, sec- sector is really important. But it's also really relying on the individuals and in the agencies that are, are experts in that, right? So, um, you know, the city's an expert in the things that we're an expert in. But we also recognize that the, the folks that are actually doing this work are experts. And um, they have uh, sometimes a different perspective and, and different different ways to, to help support individuals who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, some other populations we're seeing are our seniors, uh, definitely women in general, uh, as well as those that are fleeing violence. Um, youth youth is a, is a very significant population that we're seeing uh, needing services. And we, we really see it in our youth shelter since it's opened in August of last year. Uh, it's been full since day one and uh, not unexpected, but I would suggest that the, the reason why uh, and, and some of the challenges you are seeing with the folks uh, that are, are, are um, you know, young age, uh, are, are very varied. And so it's it's as much as having families drop kids off because they're at their wit's end, have no other uh, opportunity for them, to kids that are fleeing violence, that are addicted to drugs, that are, um, you know, dealing with trauma. And so uh, as well as kids that are, you know, aging out of the our, our, our traditional support systems from for youth. So uh, a lot of different challenges on the youth side, different challenges on our Indigenous and women fleeing violence side. Um, so, you know, we, we do, like I say, try to work with individuals specifically. We work with individual programs and and, and it's a, it's a large job. It absolutely is because it's not a cookie cutter approach and you feel like you're um, working with uh, um, individuals and agencies uh, in the weeds sometimes. But I would suggest that the work we do, like we highlight the veterans uh, successes we've made, we've been able to put a process to that. And so the real key is, okay, so how did, how did that process work? What was, what were the factors of success? Uh, and then how can we translate that to other areas, right? So some of it was around um, being able to purposely identify a veteran, right? And making sure that uh, we know the resources they have available through Vets Canada. Uh, are they connected with the Legion? Uh, and really starting to build that trust and build that relationship. And giving our agencies the ability to, to do that with the folks that are experiencing homelessness is really that best first step, right? Because if you don't have trust, uh, you're never gonna get anybody out of the situation they're in. and so. Um, that's the biggest first step for, all, for us in our agencies that we do is, is to build that trust or regain that trust in some instances because uh, we recognize that uh, for various reasons, you know uh, from past experiences, uh, people are very untrusting of the system, so to speak. and so uh, it's not helped them in the past or it may even be a source of their trauma. So recognizing that and trying to be flexible uh, but still you know be fair and transparent is, is sort of the work we do at the city
2: yeah i think that's uh obviously important work the last thing i want to ask you about craig before we wrap up here is there anything that we're not doing right now that you wish we were or that you want to work towards the city of london uh implementing when it comes to helping those who are experiencing homelessness
3: yeah you know i think i think what a, a not an easy question yeah. like <laughs> all tough questions today Craig, which i appreciate it's a, it's a it's a very challenging topic but um from my perspective you know it's doing more of what we're doing, right? And that's the real challenge is we're not a, a funded system. So it's really hard to, to priori- prioritize people who are so vulnerable to, to, to fixed resources. And you really, you talked about it earlier uh, in in, in, the, in our discussion around, um, you know, people living in poverty, uh, people having enough money to, to sort of just get by. And so if we get somebody housed, they still have that poverty barrier in many cases. And so how do we Help and manage that, and so I think, from from my perspective, you know, being able to do more, have a better-funded system uh, that is is coordinated and is that is, is able to show the outcome. So if you can, you can show. The work you're doing, and and then um, you know it's doing good work, and uh, that you're able to then you know fund more resources and fund more spaces to those those folks. Um, You know, I think the alignment of our systems are coming along really, really well. Uh, Always still work to do there. You know, room for an improvement, and we definitely don't have a perfect system. But uh, you know, we're better than we were yesterday, and tomorrow we're going to be better than we are today. And I think that's really the key: is that we're. we're able to be on a bit of a track now. And, um, you know, that light at that end of the tunnel isn't turned off anymore. There is some opportunity. And, you know, we see from the vets and other uh, individuals we're working with, you know, there's a lot of success stories out there uh, just as much as there are challenges. And so uh, every day, you know, my staff and I, we have our, our boards and whiteboards and, and various email threads that we share with each other around the successes. Cause we need to do that. Right. Cause it is um, it's a very dire situation mm-hmm. and it's very, uh, emotionally challenging for folks that work in this sector, right? Not only uh, my staff at the city, but everybody uh, that we find, and all the agents that are actually doing the work on the ground, right? There is a lot of that that trauma that they're facing because you feel uh, so challenged. So being able to share the good news stories, like I say, and and be able to recreate sort of some of those successes uh, are really the key for us. And so we're going to keep driving and keep doing a lot of that work, and uh, not being afraid to change uh, is is our biggest mantra lately. And um, you know, we're 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 trying everything we can to to support those individuals that are experiencing homelessness. I think that's uh,
2: a fantastic spot to leave. it. Craig, thank you so much for giving us a couple minutes for the podcast today. Uh, glad you could do it. Thank you for this. Happy. Thanks, Craig. Talk soon. That's Craig Cooper, Manager of Homeless Prevention with the City of London, joining us here on the Blackburn News Podcast. Want to continue looking into homelessness in the community now with Dr. Jody Hall, who of course is one of the co-founders of Safe Space London. They're a peer support organization that helps people who are in homelessness, in crisis, oftentimes they are sex workers. Dr. Hall joins us right now to discuss the homelessness issue from her perspective and how her organization is helping and what she thinks the city can do a little more of. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for your time
1: thank you so much for the invitation
2: we are seeing homelessness numbers increase in the city of london certainly during the pandemic i was talking with craig cooper about that they're seeing some trends they don't like trying to turn back some of those trends what can you tell me you're seeing at safe space right now in the last 12 months here
1: well for us we are seeing an incredible increased demand in supports across the board everything from food security to access to harm reduction supplies to even things like companionship and the need for a reduction in isolation. We're servicing all genders and we're seeing also a wider age range among folks who are accessing our space from children who come forward to request food items on behalf of family members who may be unable to uh, travel the distance to the space or the weather conditions are not appropriate to folks much older than we're generally used to seeing when our focus is on uh, working with uh, and on behalf of sex workers. Uh,
2: so with with that happening, and like you said, you're seeing uh, more more genders, younger people. Uh, how do you adjust as an agency, as an organization to that increased demand and in, in a wider spectrum of people coming in?
1: Great question, Craig, because I think that we're still actually continuing to reimagine our services. We, as you know, our safe space is grounded in a relational model of care, meaning relationships are at the center of all we do. And bringing folks inside our space to just have a break from the outside elements, to laugh together, to share a meal together, to just hang out like we are in a living room was always our model of care. And so with the pandemic, we've had to move very quickly. We didn't shut our doors down throughout any of this time while others had to reduce hours or close down around us. We just knew we had to open our arms wide to our community that lives were literally on the line. And so it meant for us adjusting quite quickly to being able to meet people out in the parking lot, socially distanced to collect requested needed items, and then to have a whole team of volunteers inside who could very quickly meet Uh, the requested needs by pulling together those requested needed items and then pass them back outside, which is a very different model of care for us than we uh, had in place prior to the pandemic.
2: From the perspective of the people who are coming in, are, are they not seeing some of those needs met at some of the other services, the ones that are, are, are directly run by the city, shelters and things along those lines? Is there, uh, uh, are, are there people, and, and I know this is probably not new, but are there people who are falling through the cracks in the system that we have set up right now?
1: Definitely safe space plays a role that is not replicated within any other organization within the community, given again, that relationships are so central to care. So there there are other organizations that can provide goods needed items that people may, Uh, be requesting, so clothing or food or home reduction supplies, but it's the model of care that people come back to safe space for, because they're not just somebody who is a service user, they are part of our community. And so belonging, being welcomed, being called by your name, and having that opportunity to check in and catch up is so important. And so we have had to continue to expand who we service, what we provide with no real tangible adjustment to the budget that is at hand. And so we are stretched past our limits at this point to try and fill in for the gaps that have been revealed. Certainly the pandemic impacts uh, people within our community in really particular ways, the ways that public spaces are policed. And so, for instance, this comes down to concerns Throughout uh, the later part of December, when the stay-at-home lockdown order came in place, we had to be very careful about sharing forward the information that there were gathering limits on public spaces. And so when people came to check in with us or with other people in the parking lot while they received a meal or with their requested needed item, we had to encourage them to move along because we were very concerned that with more than five of us in that public space that we may be subject to by law enforcement or fines or any other kind of policing that uh, we're often subjected to by just being in public spaces.
2: Yeah, and that's the, the, the tough thing about me, for, for me, rather, in this conversation is, we uh, criminalize homelessness in a lot of ways. We make it more difficult to be homeless than uh, it needs to be. We, we, we almost, as a society, deliberately add challenges to that. And I think that's something as a city we should be working on. Obviously, when we hear that there are, you know, thirteen to 1,400 people who are experiencing homelessness, and that's kind of just the uh, the, the very start of it in our community, that's, that's concerning. But uh, the fact that we're making life more difficult on those people because of systems we have in place is something that I think we really need to have a long and honest conversation about.
1: Absolutely, Craig. And one of the things that we are really noticing is the time delay between when a community member comes to the space requesting a safe place to stay, that the hoops that they are required to jump through is such a disadvantage, that it's such a mechanism of oppression in and of itself, that the gap between the time I might take to do that intake, then having to try and come up with a creative way that we'll be able to reach them, if and when a space becomes available, we lose track of people, people die, people become incarcerated, people are pushed further out of reach so that even 12 to 24 hour delay, and when we're able to say, oh, we think a spot's become available for you, we may have lost them. and that, is a design flaw or it's a design that's working exactly in service of these systems. For us, we see it day in and day out. As people present, they're made to jump through hoops, sit on waiting lists, hope that the next time our hours are open and they come to to check in with us, that we have good news, that they don't have to sleep out in conditions that are completely uninhabitable for humans. It's just not okay
2: no it's not and I I think to myself when I go outside you know brush off my car in the morning if I've got to do that for my wife to take the kids to daycare whatever it happens to be and it's miserable I think to myself imagine being out here all night it just it's it's horrible and look I I hear the the messages from the city that we're, we're eradicating veterans homelessness and that's good and they want to work more on homelessness for people who are indigenous people who are struggling with addictions issues who are struggling with mental health issues and that's great but timing matters here
1: Timing absolutely matters. And we were we were late to this coming into the winter and we knew that it was going to get rough. And still there was a delay in the opening of resting spaces and other um, housing for folks that was temporary. And we really need to see the commitment to a succession plan for the spaces that have been made available through the WISH program or through um, the hotels. We need a commitment that is followed through to funding because living outside is not safe any time of year. And so what's going to happen come the end of March, in the beginning of April, when people start to say, well, it's not as, uh, you know, it's not as difficult to live outside now. The weather is warming up. No, it is never okay to, to have two over 200 people sitting on a waiting list for housing that are, that are living deprived of housing at this moment. People are made homeless. People are deprived of housing. People just don't arrive and identify with being homeless
2: uh, what could or should the city of london be doing right now to make it so there isn't that big waiting list and make it so the resources of safe space are not stretched as much as they are right now
1: one i think that the city and the community at large needs to recognize that there is an incredible amount of invisible labor that everyday citizens are taking up to try and fill in for these gaps like the time that it takes for us to literally comb the neighborhoods to ensure that our community members know that there are options available to them or to notify them that a room has become available or a spot has become available. That's, incredibly valuable work that is going uncompensated and non-funded within our community we need to see a commitment to sustainable long-term housing not just temporary solutions we know that spring is coming that the pandemic is still at play what are we going to do to ensure that everybody who's been temporarily housed isn't turfed to the curb when the funding that is currently available runs out like it's going to happen. So, what are we doing right now to ensure that we are taking care of everyone um, who's a member of the London community? Uh,
2: yeah, and we need to because, uh, and, and look, I've 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 had this rant many many years on many different platforms. Yeah. we're doing things the expensive way right now. This the system where we are relying on our legal system and relying on our medical system, yes. relying on our mental health system to to help people who have been experiencing homelessness. Uh, that is more expensive than making sure people don't experience homelessness. And I I think more people are starting to get that. I hope more people are starting to get that. But this is both the morally reprehensible way and the expensive way at the same time. So this should be a problem that we should all be working to correct.
1: Absolutely. It is incredibly expensive to police a pandemic, to police your way through what is and ought to be a community-based response to our fellow human beings. And I think optically, we like to believe that we're moving the needle forward, but what we are seeing in the day in and day out is that we have to fight for the most basic of human dignities, like a porta potty. A porta potty became emblematic for safe space of the struggle to just have people acknowledge that other human beings need safe places to go to the washroom, like that they could be entitled to that. And Devastatingly, people ended up needing to shelter in porta potties in this very city. How do we go to bed at night with that on our hearts? Like, how do we find peace with the ways in which this pandemic has, again, disproportionately impacted people who are already experiencing such systemic oppression?
2: It's uh, a great question and I want to try to find the answer to it. So going forward, what do we do going in in the the, the months and and even years to come? Because in the months to come, we've still got what's left of this pandemic. Hopefully we have everyone getting vaccinated by the fall and things are somewhat back to normal, but that doesn't mean the homelessness problem goes away. So what do you want to see between now and the end of the pandemic? And what do you want to see after that?
1: So for us... What we would always come back to is if there is the ability, we would like to encourage our London community to fund peer led community based grassroots organizations who are as close to and living within and among our community members taking up this work day in and day out and we're exhausted. We need more resources. We need to be able to bring on more people who are paid for their labor to try and fill in for these enormous gaps that people are falling through. We need to continue to put pressure on the city to see what the succession plan is, to demand to know what is the commitment of funding that we need to know what's going to happen once you know March and April turns around I think we need that kind of transparency right now. We need to be vocal, we need to be putting pressure, and we need to, need to ensure that nobody is forcefully deprived of housing at any point in time, much less where we know that it has such uh, health effects on people who are already experiencing the, the damaging and eroding effects of being deprived of home, uh, of a house, of a safe place to live.
2: Dr. Hall, thank you so much for this and, and providing this context for, uh, for our audience. Uh, so glad you could do it and uh, really
0: of the time. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Blackburn News Podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also find it and previous episodes at blackburnnews.com blackburn news podcast as a presentation of blackburn media